Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Lucas Cooper. I am the lead pastor of Bayview Glen Church in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I was on staff here, uh, just as was mentioned before, for eight years uh, and got the opportunity to work with Rustin over at the venue and help launch the venue. I've actually known Rustin since he was in the fourth grade, so I could do 40 minutes of stories if you wanted me to. Um, <laughs> Shared a wall with Troy for a little while, just great opportunity to serve here on staff. So, so uh, again, welcome wherever you're joining us. If you're online streaming or if you're over in the chapel or one of our venues, just uh, welcome to everybody. Um, it's interesting, I, I saw or just, you know, even heard that uh, you guys are doing a, an ice skating event and, f- and $5 covers the time at, at the ice thing and skate rental. And there are a lot of differences between Americans and Canadians, lots of differences. One is this, that we don't have to rent skates. <laughs> Everybody has them. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but 60% of Canadian children are actually born with skates on their feet. They just come right out <laughs> ready to skate. That's kind of how we roll up there. Uh, Jamie always likes for me to do uh, a, a little bit of an update on kind of where we're at, Amy and I. And uh, I talked about Kaya last week. We adopted her in August of 2014. We actually have a an interesting uh, relationship with her birth parents. We have what's called an open adoption. Uh, that's not always like best case scenario. Every adoption situation is different, but what that means for us is that we have ongoing contact with Kaya's birth parents, and we absolutely love that. In fact, when we went down to adopt her in August of 2014, we uh, took them to church. Uh, we had, they hadn't been to church in a very, very long time, and they both said yes to Jesus and came to Christ that Sunday we were there, so that was a lot of fun. It was a fun part of my year. Uh, yeah, it's, you can clap for that. It's good. Um, Bayview Glen is an interesting place. It actually sits on the border of the, the, the number one and number two most multi-ethnic cities in the world. That's Markham in uh, Ontario and Toronto in, in the south, the, the, the city of Toronto proper. So of 800 to 1,000 people that would be at Bayview Glen Church on any given Sunday morning, we have over 110 nationalities represented any given Sunday morning. So that means you count seven people and switch nationalities. That's what that means. And so we've had uh, a number of individuals come to Christ over the last year that have been a lot of fun. Uh, people that, you know, you wouldn't typically meet here in Phoenix. Maybe you would, but probably not typically. One of them, and I'll keep the details vague just for his own safety's sake, but um, he is a physician and he was on the front lines of the Iran-Iraq Civil War with Ayatollah Khomeini and Saddam Hussein. And, uh, in Iran and Iraq, in, and uh, he came to Christ this last year at Bayview Glen. He's there every single week. It's a lot of fun uh, to, to hear about kind of his transition and, and, and uh, saying yes to Jesus there. Another individual that we um, baptized just about six months ago, she has her PhD in microbiology, and, um, you know, she's working on her English because English just so happens to be her sixth language. So, you know, her headspace is kind of taken up by other stuff. It, you know, it's, it's so funny, you know, with PhD in microbiology and six languages, and I, I had a tough time doing seminary online, you know. It's like, uh, <laughs> this is really getting old here. Um, so it's really a joy. Scottsdale Bible does feel like home. It's always a lot of fun to come back here, but Bayview Glen Church in Toronto is really uh, where we've put our roots down, and we have outstanding friends and outstanding board there, great leaders in that church, and we just covet your continued prayers for our ministry there. And uh, I covet your prayers for Amy because she has to live with me. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump back into the book of Colossians. Before we do that, I would like to pray. So would you join your hearts with me in prayer? Oh, God, we invite you to speak. God, we've come here expecting something. 
Some of us have just a little, little bit of expectation, maybe, it, maybe, a, maybe just a little glimmer of hope that you might be real. That you might have hope for us, that you might have change for us. Some of us, we've been walking with you for a long time, and we just know you're almost, it's almost like we can, we can reach out and touch you in this place. No matter where we're at, God, we come to you and we invite you to speak. Would you reward us today with a little bit of yourself? with your presence, with your glory, by being near to us in this place as we worship you and as we hear from your word. Holy Spirit, speak in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, if you were here with us, we uh, spent uh, most of our time, in fact, all of our time in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And what we did was we just kind of scratched the surface of a, of a rich, compelling, and cogent Christology that Paul presents in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. That is to say that we answered two questions last week. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And in the rest of Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul takes that high view of Christ and he uses uses it to dismantle some of the false teaching that was going on in the Colossian church. So here's what Paul does in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians. He establishes Christ as the burning sun at the center of the universe, and then he completely obliterates any teaching that does not highlight the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Then in chapter 3, he begins to get specific about the implications for those who follow Christ. He begins to get specific about the life application for believers, and that's where we'll be today in the second of two anchor texts, at least for me, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is, is really a transitional text in the book of Colossians. For those of you who are familiar with Paul's writings and his letters to the churches, he does this a lot. He covers theology in the first half, and then he moves to practice and application in the second half. He talks about the nature of God in the first half, and then he talks about what that means for us on a day-in, day-out basis. And Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is the transition from the first half to the second half of that letter. And, and I've got a little outline for us today. So just kind of we all understand where we're headed and what we're doing today and where we're going of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If, it hel if this helps you, fantastic. If not, that's fine. It did help me as I studied the passage. So here's what Paul is doing in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, just so we can prepare ourselves mentally for where he's headed. Paul presents to us a condition, and then he gives us instruction, and then there's a motivation for doing what he says. So the condition is, is, there's a big if, and we'll see that in a minute. He says, if this is true about you, here's some instruction. Here's some exhortation. Here's some encouragement. Here's your marching orders, so to speak. And so if we were to ask ourselves, why, Paul? Why would I do what you've just charged me to do? Why would I follow those instructions? Paul then presents to us a motivation. He says, here's why you would do this. So if this is true about you, do this, and here's why. So that's where we're going today. That's what we're going to see Paul unpack in these four verses in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up. If you don't have them, that's fine. The Scripture is up here on the screen. So let's begin with that condition that Paul presents to us in Colossians 3, verse 1. Paul writes this. Here we go. If then you have been raised with Christ. Stop there. Did everybody see it? The condition? Everybody sees it? If then you have been raised with Christ. We tend to kind of gloss over statements like this in the scripture. We kind of just zip by them. Just kind of ask you, beg of you even, don't do that when you read the Bible. Every word of the scripture is breathed out by God. 
So every book of the Bible, every paragraph, every chapter, every sentence, every word means something. So what is it about this verse that matters? It's in that one key word, it's if. If. There's a condition there. Paul wants to alert his listeners because in the church at Colossae, this letter would have been read out loud to the whole church in its entirety. He wants to alert his readers to the possibility that there are some who are listening that have not been raised with Christ. So he says, if this is you, then I'm about to give you some instruction. Just just pause there for a minute. Can you imagine that? So many of these folks in the church at Colossae would have been around when Jesus was around. This was written just 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Some of them may have heard him teach. Some of them might remember what five loaves and two fish tasted like when he multiplied them. Some of them might have had friends or family that were present when Jesus was crucified. Some of them, maybe, maybe, we're not sure, but they may have even seen the resurrected Jesus. Can you imagine that? And yet, and yet, Paul does not say since you've been raised with Christ. He doesn't assume they've had new life in Jesus. He says if that's true about you. In other words, there were folks at the church at Colossae that had not been raised with Christ. And if there were folks in Colossae that had not been raised with Christ that were reading the very first copy of what would become the New Testament, by the way, I just got a hunch, just a guess, that there may be some here with us this morning that have not been raised raised with Christ. So here's our first question. Have you been raised with Christ? Have you been raised with Christ? Because if the answer is no, I've not been raised with Christ, then Paul isn't talking to you. He he can be talking to you if you repent and trust Christ, but if you haven't done that, he's not talking to you. God loves you. We love you. Paul, if he was here today, would be very old, like 2,000 years, but he would love you too. You're great. He's just not talking to you. So in order to determine whether or not he's talking to you, in order to determine whether or not you've been raised with Christ, given new life in him, I just want to ask you three questions. You ready? Here they are. To determine whether or not Paul is talking to you. One, are you a sinner? (laughs) Like this new guest speaker is lame. I don't like him at all. Are you a sinner? Are you an idolater? Have you rebelled against what God told you to do? Have there been any evil thoughts, actions, or motivations of your heart? Have you known the good you ought to do and not done it? Have you agreed with God about what he says about you, that you are a sinner. And in case this bothers you and you want to send an email, it's jamie at scottsdalebible.com, but <laughs> I also want to read to you 1 John 1.8. It says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we are not living in truth. It's pretty straightforward. The first step when it comes to new life in Jesus, being raised with Christ, is admitting that I'm a sinner and owning the consequences. Number two, question two, have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? Have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? Again, not a popular thing to say these days, but Acts 4.12 says this, there is salvation in no one else. Pretty clear. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. 
And this no other name thing doesn't just apply to another human religious figure, although it does. It means that the name of tolerance doesn't save. It means the name of morality doesn't save. The name of higher power doesn't save. The name of religion doesn't save. Jesus and only Jesus saves. So have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? Question three, is there a growing hunger inside of you for the things of God? Now that one's, that one's, that one, that one hurts, doesn't it? Is there a growing hunger inside of you for the things of God? Look, I'm not going to get as dogmatic about this question as I, as I would the other two, okay? Because I know this one is a little tricky. I get that. So let's just talk it through. But, but, but here's, here's the reality. True faith in Jesus always produces a growing hunger for Jesus. True faith in Jesus always produces a growing hunger, a growing intensity, a growing seriousness for the things of God. And if you don't find within yourself a growing intensity for the things of God, a growing hunger for the things of God, perhaps, just perhaps, just perhaps, you haven't really placed your faith in him. So let's say it this way. If I asked question one and you said yes, and I asked question two and you said yes, and I asked question three and you said no, perhaps your answers to questions one and two weren't as emphatically yes as you thought. And I, I get this, that this is a journey. How many of you can say with me, and I will admit this myself, that, that our growth in Christ has peaks and valleys, doesn't it? We don't always wake up in the morning, I just desire the things of God. It's got peaks and valleys, I get that. But over time, those who have been raised with Christ find within themselves a growing hunger and intensity for the things of God. So if that's you, if you've confessed your sin and trusted Christ alone and you find within yourself a growing hunger for the things of God generated by God, by the way, then Paul is talking to you. The second reason that verse one is important, it's so critical, it's critical to understand this, so we're gonna talk it through, but the order is important here. The order of things is so critical because here's why. In Colossians three and four, Paul's about to talk about behavior. He's about to talk about how a Christian acts and thinks. And if you don't get the order right, you're going to think that all the behavior in Colossians 3 and 4 is what raises you with Christ. You're going to think that behaving in a certain way or following all the instructions in Colossians 3 and 4 is what saves you or gives you redemption. And you would be wrong, by the way, because that's not grace. That's not, that's not Christ-reliance, that's self-reliance. It's, it's legalism to think that Colossians 3 and 4, all the instruction there, if I do that, that's what gives me new life in Christ. Here's how grace works. Here's how God works. Grace says this. You are saved because of God's never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. You are not saved because of anything you've done. So please understand. Paul talks about spiritual resurrection with Christ that is by faith through grace alone, not because of your behavior. And he does that first on purpose before he talks about behavior. I'm gonna say it like three or four different ways just so we're all clear. You ready? Christ gives you new life, then he produces change. Changing your behavior does not bring about new life in Christ. First, Christ saves you. Then he does the hard work of changing your thoughts, affections, and behavior. You don't change you so that God saves you. He saves you, 
then he changes you. For Bible scholars that you like the $2 theological words, again, that I learned in online seminary, justification leads to sanctification, not the other way around. So please be sure to mark it. The order is important. Jesus raises an individual to new life. You're given new life in Christ. That's first, and it's got nothing to do with your behavior. Salvation first, change second. So we're clear on the condition if you have been raised with Christ. And we're clear on why the order is important, that you get new life first, and that results in change. So let's take a look at Paul's instructions. What are Paul's instructions for those who have been raised with Christ? We'll just go back and start reading right from verse one. Here we go. If then you have been raised with Christ, here's the instruction, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Okay, so there are two exhortations here, two instructions, two encouragements from Paul, and we're just going to take them one at a time. The first thing that he tells us to do is seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. In the original language, that word seek is zeteo, and it's a little bit difficult to translate. So what we're going to do is we're going to grab a couple of different Bible translations here and put them together so we can kind of help complete the picture of what Paul is saying to us when he tells us to seek the things that are above. So in the English Standard Version, which is the Bible I'm reading here, Paul says, seek the things that are above. Anybody have a Bible translation in front of them that says set your hearts on? Raise your hand if you've got, you got set your hearts on. Good. How many of you have set your sights on? Does anybody have set your sights on? Good. Awesome. These are great translations. So if we put them all together and understand what Paul is saying, here's what he's saying. He's saying that we ought to desire, to set our affections on, to set our hearts on, to orient our heart towards something different. This has to do with our desires and our affections, what we love. Now, he says, now that he said seek these things, he says to set your minds on. So this instruction, this exhortation has to do with what we think about, what we ponder, or what we dwell on. It's got more to do with head than heart. Do you see the two instructions there? Seek, that's what you love, your affections, and set your mind on, that's what you think about, ponder, or dwell upon. Now he takes these two commandments to seek and set your minds on, and he connects them to the same object, which is the things above the things above and just in case we're not clear as to what the things above means Paul says the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God if you recall from last week Colossians 1 15 through 17 here's what Paul is saying seek set your hearts on set your minds on the things above where Christ is because he is the image of the invisible God from Colossians 1 the firstborn of all creation for by him and through him and for him all things were created and all things all things hold together in him. So Paul is saying that Christ exalted, Christ as the image of God, Christ as the author and constructor and sustainer of creation, that should be what captivates us. Christ enthroned and exalted should be what captures our hearts and minds. He should be the object of our affections, our thoughts, and our longings. Now stop here because I find this absolutely fascinating. I find this fascinating. Listen, how many of you would be willing to admit with me 
that when we think about what it means to be a Christian, we almost immediately think about behavior. Come on. Come on now. The rest of you are lying and you're doing it at church. <laughs> we, we think about behavior. We think about do this, don't do that. Now that you're a Christian, act this way, behave differently. Some of you don't. That's okay. I'm just joking about lying. I get that. But, but some of us, we think almost immediately about behavior. And if I was writing to the Colossian church, I might have done that too. I might have established this rich, cogent theology that Paul establishes and then immediately turned my attention towards behavior. But look at what Paul's doing. He's focused on the internal, not the external. You see it? He's focused on the thoughts and the heart of a man, the affections, what he thinks about, not on behavior. So here's my question. Why? Why is Paul so concerned with what we think about and what we love? Well, Paul first of all, knows this, that the greatest miracle is the changing of a human heart. <laughs> Paul knew this personally, by the way. He, he knew this in his own personal testimony of faith, that the greatest miracle is the changing of a human heart. There are lots of things that might change your behavior. Money might change your behavior. Fear, guilt, shame, happiness, self-control, those things might all change your behavior, but only God, listen to me, only God can change a human heart. So Paul knows the greatest miracle is the changing of a human heart. The second thing that Paul knows is that man's thoughts and affections are the true catalyst for his behavior. What we think about and what we love are the true catalyst for our behavior. Robert Browning said it this way. He said, thought is the soul of act. Ralph Waldo Emerson, favorite of mine, said, thought is the seat of action. The ancestor of every action is thought. The ancestor of every action is thought. They're essentially saying what Proverbs 4 says. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What you think about and what you love inevitably governs your behavior. There's no way around it. I'll tell you a quick story. A couple years ago, uh, when Amy and I were in the adoption process, we had been matched with a birth family, and it was time for us to register. You know, you do the thing when you register, and they give you the, the thing, and you shoot the, the things for the stuff you want people to buy for you, which I, I thought was great, because I was like, let's go to Costco. Register at Costco, the place from whence all good things come. Because um, I wanted to be able to register for a big vat of protein powder and a recliner in the same place. And I wanted to, but Amy said, no, we got to go to Babies R Us. And we registered to Babies R Us. I didn't want to. Like I went and I kind of went through the motions and I was like, oh, I want to go to Costco. Like it wasn't, it wasn't my thing. I mean, we had been matched, but Kaya wasn't around yet, right? So last week, uh, I'm in, um, just the day before I flew out here, actually, I walked into a department store in Toronto. It's called Hudson's Bay Company or the Bay for Canadian friends. It's, it's like a Dillard's, but it's in Canada, so there's like a lot more maple syrup there, but it's pretty similar to like a Nordstrom or something, right? So I walk into this department store, and the first thing that I walk into is baby clothes. It's baby clothes. And I was on the phone with the chair of our elder board, good friend of mine and my boss, by the way, and I totally checked out of the conversation emotionally. I did. And he's like, where, where did you just go? Like, I, w I walked into the bay. He's like, no, 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 emotionally, intellectually, where'd you go? He's like, and I said to him, I'm looking at little girl clothes. <laughs> and it's awesome. <laughs> little skinny jeans from my little girl that shouldn't be wearing skinny jeans, but I like them. Like, now I know what a romper is. Do you know what a romper is? I know what that is now because I have a little girl and I'm so excited about it. And now instead of just zipping through that stuff to get to what I wanna to get to, I spent a little bit of time there, checked out of a conversation emotionally. Why? Because my love has changed. 
You see it? If you change what a man loves and thinks about, you will inevitably change his behavior. Paul knows this. So when he starts talking about application in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, he immediately starts with thoughts and affections, what we think about and what we love. So God, through his word and through Paul, is commanding us to orient our affections, seek, set your heart on, orient our thoughts, set your minds on the things above, namely Christ exalted. So how in the world do we do that? (laughs) How do we seek and set our minds on things above? How do I seek and set my minds on things above? I want to offer you three questions today that might help you to seek and set your minds on things above. I know we've already done three questions to determine whether or not Paul is talking to you, but we're just going to do three questions again. You ready? Question one, how do you seek and set your minds on things above? Question one, have you made a choice to do that? I know this might sound overly simplified to you, But when it comes to what we think about, this is a choice. Perhaps, just perhaps, there are things that enter your brain on accident every now and then, but I would venture to guess that the vast majority of what occupies your dome are things that you've decided to put in there. You've made a willful, deliberate, and premeditated choice to think about work, school, a person, a vacation, a promotion, money, So if you desire to reorient your thoughts and affection toward things above, in part, this is going to mean a conscious, willful choice. And I'll tell you that for me personally, this choice has really come in in a couple of forms. One, it's come in the form of a life choice. It's come in the form of a life choice. This is what happens when you make the decision that Jesus' kingdom and eternity is more important than anything here. This is where the change process really begins for all of us. It's where it began for me when I made a choice that Jesus' eternal kingdom was worth my life, specifically speaking, as it relates to our conversation today, he was worth my affections and my thoughts. It was a life choice. Second, I would say there are times in our life where where we have a a seasonal choice, what I'll call a seasonal choice. You know, there's, there's moments in your life where you go through a season in life, Like it could be a season of starting a family, a season of getting married. Maybe you've just entered university. Maybe you've just quit a job to start a new company. Maybe you just got promoted. Maybe your kids are grown and they've just moved out of the house and you've become an empty nester, praise God. You know, you have a season that you're in right now. now. Perhaps you're in a season of difficulty and trial. Perhaps you're going through a difficult divorce. Perhaps you're caring for aging parents or or an aging spouse. Perhaps you're at the end of your life. No matter what season you're in, you can still make a choice, a choice to dwell upon Christ, to set your heart and mind on the things above in that season. So finally, for me, there's this daily choice that I make. A daily choice, even a moment-by-moment choice, a choice when you first wake up in the morning to orient your affections and your thoughts, to give Jesus your first love, to give him your first thoughts, and to do so right at the beginning of the day. Now, I want to give you a quick point of application that might help you to do this. For some of you, this won't make any sense, and that's okay, but for some of you, this will make absolute total sense of how you might begin your day with affections and thoughts for Jesus. Are you ready? Don't charge your phone on your nightstand. 
For some of you, I just got in your head, didn't I? For some of you, you're going, I don't know what that means. For some of you, you know exactly what that means. Because the first thing you do when that alarm goes off is you grab your phone and you're checking what happened on Instagram at 2 a.m. You know what I mean? Can I just clue you in what happened on Instagram at 2 a.m.? Nothing. Like nothing good anyway. Nobody ever posts. It's like karaoke at 2 a.m. Like what is that? Nothing. You don't need to start your day with Instagram. You don't need to start your day responding to a bunch of emails. Like we, we just panic. It's like I got to get this email. I got to get this email. Like puppies and kittens all over the world are not going to combust if you give an email 10 minutes before you respond. Like don't start your day on your phone. Put it somewhere else in your house. Get up and say, oh, Jesus, I give you my thoughts and affections today. Now where's my phone? <laughs> Question two. What of this world distracts you? What of this world distracts you? So check this out. Here's what Paul tells us to do. He could have said to us, set your minds on things above, period, couldn't he? Set your minds on things above, period. But he doesn't. He says, set your minds on things above and not on things that are on the earth. Why? Because he knows that the tyranny of the urgent sometimes governs our thoughts and affections, doesn't it? We start thinking about the promotion. We start thinking about a job interview. We start thinking about our next appointment or a chore or picking up the kids from soccer practice or that next meeting or that bill we need to pay. And those things can distract us from the things of God. Now, this again, this is interesting to me because I would guess that the things of this world that Paul tells us not to be distracted by, more often than not, the things of this world that are going to distract you are not morally corrupt things. They're morally neutral things, or they're even morally good things that God gave to us for our joy and in order to point us to him, but we've elevated them to God's status. So God gives us good gifts, and instead of letting those good gifts point us to the giver, we make them our gods. God gives us spouses and kids and rest. He gives us beaches and friends and food. Praise God, he gives us food, and he gives us all those things to enjoy, and they're good things, but they're meant to point us to him, not replace him. They're good, and they're from God, but they are not God. They are messengers of his grace and they're good gifts, but they're meant to point us to the giver. Look, if your spouse sends you a love letter, you don't fall in love with the dude from the post office, do you? Unless, of course, that person is your spouse, and that's totally cool, okay? The love is from your spouse. The source of love is from your spouse. It's not from the guy from the post office. In the same way, there are things in our life that are morally neutral or morally good, and they serve as signposts, messengers of God's grace, but they're not him. There are things in our life that are supposed to be the messenger of love, but not the source of love itself. So don't let morally neutral things or even morally good things rob you of ultimate joy in Christ. They're meant to point you to him, not satisfy you. And because they were never meant to satisfy you, they never will. They're empty wells. Question three, what stirs your affections for Christ? What stirs your affections for Christ? What increases that seriousness that we talked about for following God? What increases that intensity within you for following God? For some of you, being in this place on a Sunday morning 
or on a Saturday night, worshiping with the body of Christ, hearing from his word, singing songs, it stirs your affections for Christ. You walk out of here and go, I feel more intense, more serious for following God just having been there. That's great. But pay attention to those things in your life that stir up affections for Jesus. I will tell you that this is gonna mean, for, for everybody, this is gonna mean a couple of things. These apply to everybody, things that stir your affections for Christ. Scripture always involves the Bible, always. Now, you may get the Bible into your head and your heart in, in a different way. For some of you, you like covering like a lot of Bible content, like reading through the Bible in a year, reading through the Bible in, you know, over the course of three months or six months. For some of us, we like to take a verse and like camp out on it for three, four months at a time. People like me, I like to memorize the Bible. That's kind of how I get it in my head and heart. But it always involves the Bible. The Bible stirs affections for Jesus. Prayer always involves prayer. And again, you might pray in a different way than I do. You might find yourself praying through the Psalms. You might use like, you know, the cat's method, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. You might like to sit in silence before God. Maybe you journal your prayers. My wife uses a journal. She loves to journal her prayers. I've never written a journal page in my life. It's just not me. Like I feel like a 14-year-old at a Taylor Swift show, you know, dear diary. You know, I just, it's just not me. But that's okay, but I found a way to connect with God in prayer in a way that's most helpful for me. Why? Because it stirs my affections for Jesus. There might be things like exercise in your life. I find that for me. When I put my body in motion and block out distractions, I find my heart and mind begin to focus on Jesus. Spending time in his creation is also a big part for me. So what is it for you? What stirs your affections for Jesus? Here's my encouragement. Pay close attention to the things of the world that distract you. And they're probably going to be morally good things or morally neutral things. But pay close attention to what those things are. Then pay close attention to what stirs your affections for Jesus and then adjust accordingly. More time, energy, headspace, heart space into the things that stir your affections for Jesus and less into the things that distract you. So here's what we've established now. We've got the condition, if then you've been raised with Christ. We've got the instruction, seek, set your heart on, and then set your mind on the things above. So now let's look at the motivation. What's the motivation? Why would we do all this reorienting of our thoughts and minds and hearts? Look at verse three. Here's what Paul says. Here's Paul's motivation. This is great, by the way. This, I, I just love this. Ready? For you have died. We could just stop there. For you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So check this out. For me, oftentimes the greatest challenge, this is for me personally now, when it comes to focusing my thoughts and affections on Jesus is the fact that it really doesn't mean much in this world we live in. The wicked still prosper. The arrogant, the greedy, the dishonest are still the ones who succeed, not those who are focused on Christ. How many of you got your most recent promotion because your boss walked into your office and said, you know what, I find that your affections are focused on Jesus, so I'm going to give you a 10% raise. Like, that doesn't happen. It doesn't get us much in this world we live in, right? So you might think to yourself, when is it going to be my time? 
When is success going to come for me? When will my pursuit of Jesus, my reorienting of my thoughts and my affections on him, when will all of that be vindicated? Listen to what Paul says. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. When Jesus comes back, when he cracks open the sky and sets all things right, guess what? The wicked won't prosper. Those who follow Christ will reign with him forever. Our old self has died. Our new life is hidden with Christ. And when he returns and our our new life is no longer hidden, just as he's no longer hidden, the purpose of our life, the way we oriented thoughts and affections on Jesus will be completely vindicated. It's going to make total sense to everybody when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to make total sense. Look, I, I read a story this week. Help us understand. So I read a story about this week uh, about a young man named Jeff. Uh, Jeff's mom was 19 years old. Jeff never knew his biological dad. Jeff had an adoptive dad that was 20. Jeff's first job was castrating cattle on his grandfather's ranch. Jeff got tired of that job, as we all would, I suppose. <laughs> and Jeff got a job flipping burgers at McDonald's, which, if you were castrating cattle, is like a lateral, lateral move at best. Um, I, w- I waited tables for a year at Applebee's, so I don't have much room to, to talk there. Um, sorry, Applebee's and McDonald's people. I just apologize. Jeff was said to be friendly but serious. He was not particularly gifted in leadership, and that's a quote from one of his teachers. But Jeff got a wild idea to start a little company out of his garage. Now, you wouldn't expect a kid like that to be all that successful, would you? In fact, if someone invested with Jeff's little garage company, you might even poke fun at them. You might even feel embarrassed for them. But today, little Jeff, who was not particularly gifted in leadership and had cattle castration and burger flipping on his resume, uh, is the founder and CEO of a fairly successful little company. You might have heard of it. It's called Amazon. Have you heard of the Amazon? Yeah. Jeff's worth about $45 billion. Now, don't you wish you would have got in on the ground floor at Amazon? Don't you wish you would have befriended Jeff Bezos when he was castrating cattle and flipping burgers at McDonald's? Don't you wish you would have bought Amazon stock at $18 a share? It's worth about $450 a share now. And it's clear to us now, but who could have predicted it back then when Jeff started the company out of his garage? Who could have seen Amazon coming? But if we could have seen it, it would have changed our behavior, wouldn't it? It would have changed the way we thought. It would have changed what we do. So like a man who changes his behavior, his thoughts and affections, because he knows that Jeff Bezos is going to start a little company called Amazon and be worth $45 billion someday, our thoughts and affections shift radically because our life is hidden with Christ and God. And we're looking forward to that day when he reveals himself in his entirety and we will reign with him and appear with him in glory. Here's what Paul is saying about our motivation when it comes to reorienting our affections and thoughts around Christ. He's telling us what the future holds. 
He's lifting the curtain so we can see the future that God has in store for us. He wants us to see it clearly because God's ultimate reality has a significant impact on the choices we make in the here and now, especially as it relates to our internal world. Even if it feels silly now, it's gonna be worth it in the long run. Here's what Paul's saying about the kingdom of God, that in the kingdom of God, foresight can be 2022. We can see what's coming. This is what it means that Christ is in us and he's the hope of glory. As Jesus lives his life in and through us, we live with that hope, that confident expectation that one day he's gonna open up the sky and reveal his glory in its entirety. And he is our confidence, he is our assurance, he is in us and he is our hope of glory. Here's our bottom line truth. Here's what we're all walking out with today from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Focus your internal world on God's ultimate reality. Focus your internal world. That's what you think about and what you love. Focus your internal world on God's ultimate reality, not on your reality, not on the world's reality. Orient your internal world, your thoughts and affections on God's ultimate reality. Because can I just clue you in? It's going to pay off in the long run. That's the true reality. That's the eternal reality. Keep your eyes there. Keep your mind there. Keep your affections there. And live in eager expectation of the glory that will be revealed when Christ, who is our life, returns. Pray with me. God, we love you. And our only hope is you. You in us, the hope of glory. God, capture our thoughts and our affections just a little bit more today. Just a little bit more of what we think about, just a little bit more of what we love. Draw us near to yourself, those of us who have been raised with you. And for those maybe who haven't here today or on one of our campuses or joining us online, God, we ask that you would draw them near, that you would cause them to trust you alone for salvation and repentance and faith, that they would know today they can make that life choice and just say yes, just yes to the invitation of grace. And they would experience that new life in you as well, and you would live in them as their hope of glory. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. The people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. Amen.